0: Hello and welcome to Paramedicast. Thank you for joining us today on Paramedicast. Today we are joined by Jamie Patterson. Jamie is a paramedic who grew up in Northumberland and is now based in Aberdeen. He's is part of a Special Operations Response Team in Scotland. He's a medical officer and deputy team leader of Northumberland National Park Mountain Rescue Team. He's a World Extreme Medicine faculty member and WEM Fundamentals of Search and Rescue course director. He's an adventurer and keen explorer and recently joined the UK International Search and Rescue medical team as a volunteer. Jamie, it's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So in this episode, we will discuss Jamie's career journey through qualifying as a newly qualified paramedic to becoming a high-performing, sought paramedic. We will explore Jamie's experience gained within Mountain Rescue, his new role with UK International Search and Rescue Medical Team, and discuss Jamie's mindset and why Jamie is continuously challenging himself and searching for more. So Jamie, if it's okay, we're going to start with your early days. I believe you started with St. John Ambulance as a technician, is that correct?
1: Uh, Yeah, it is. Um, Back, way back, feels like a long time ago now. In 2013, I got, I left uni the first time after finishing my sports science degree and kind of was looking for what I was going to do with my life. I joined the mountain rescue team when I was at uni and the paramedics and within that it kind of inspired me towards towards uh, a career, I suppose, as a paramedic. So I started to pursue that. So it was basically just, I remember pl- applying for loads of jobs and I was working in a, a factory at the time, which basically was just packing lorries with like um, scallop shells of all things. And yeah, spent kind of six months doing that, applying for jobs and uh, eventually landed that one with St. John Ambulance and... They trained me up to be an ambulance technician and I was part of their kind of professional crew responding to 999 calls um, as part of their kind of business contracts, I suppose. So yeah, that it kind of all started there. And I suppose before that, like as a kid, like, my 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 mom's a nurse, so I was very aware of like the medical field and uh, what my mom did as a nurse and things. So I guess it was always in the back of my mind to do that. And I was never going to be able to sit in an office, to be honest. Uh, I don't think I ever will
0: yeah it's interesting how you said that that the paramedics in the mountain rescue team sort of sparked your interest what was it specifically about what they did or who they were what they said that really sort of pushed you in that direction
1: to be perfectly honest quite simply it was like oh like you're not bad at this first stage but lot you like do you a you know, fancy doing this and everyone kind of knew what stage of life I was on I just finished uni and stuff and was looking for the next thing I don't, I don't. know. I really couldn't tell you. There was there was just something there that that appealed to me, and I just thought, yeah, that's it. More so that you know than being a, a policeman or anything like that. I just, I guess it was just a kind of confluence of of ideas and thoughts, and yeah, the people around me. I suppose. And I, I remember spending a, a day um, on a rescue cover with a, a paramedic called Justin, um, who would had various careers and was quite an inspiring character in his own way. Just like I just liked his outlook on life, and I was like, Well, things like that. Like, I think paramedicine might be for me, or being this, this, I wanted to be that kind of person, so maybe that's that's what that kind of person does, a roundabout way.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And so, you mentioned about moving into the paramedic role, and you joined the Northeast Ambulance Service. How did you find those initial? sort of years as a newly qualified paramedic and just starting out?
1: This is a really interesting question because I joined NIAS as a technician. So I kind of just transferred across and essentially was doing the same job just with a different T-shirt on and a different um, ambulance and then applied for the internal student paramedic program probably four or five times and was obviously unsuccessful for three or four of those times. And various got to various different stages, and then uh, managed to kind of get through. And you know, and even I think for anyone starting out who who might be listening and being interested, I think uh, you have to learn the process. You have to go through these processes, and you know, give the right answers to the questions. And they are looking for certain things, and you don't always know that is. But yeah, you have to go through that process, and there is there is there are hoops to jump through. But being the the right person is important and that's all about you. And your motivations and stuff are interesting as well. I think that that can come across quite easily in interviews. But to go back to the actual question that you asked me (laughs) would be um, how I found my early years as an NQP. So the student paramedic program was interesting. Um, I qualified in February 2021. So I've only been qualified for just about two years coming up. So technically, I would still be an NQP. I did fast track my NQP year, which was um, obviously from, from kind of 2021 to 2022. And I left NIAS just as I kind of finished that and then came and joined SORT in Scotland. So my student paramedic programme was was affected by COVID in the last. So we did two years. First year was normal. And then the second year was was obviously affected by COVID and all that stuff. And then we were just kind of, we were like the the pandemic paramedics, if you like, trained in that world. And then we stepped out into it and it was us then. I, a fair bit of experience. For by, about by that point, I'd been in the mountain rescue for about 10 years and I'd done my mountain rescue casualty care qualifications, which pushes you to quite a high standard. And you're often working alone or working alone until someone else comes and backs you up. So it does push you to be quite a, Autonomous, quite a confident medic. You have to be, otherwise, I don't. I don't think. I honestly think casualty carers have to be like that, otherwise, they wouldn't be able to be casualty carers. Um, they do take on quite a lot of responsibility, and yeah, I could. I don't know. I just kind of, again, my experience is is seven or eight years as an ambulance technician stood me in good stead because I'd been doing that job for so long. I think the biggest transition was that mindset from I'm now a paramedic and my perspective on my patient and the patient journey. And what's going on has to change a bit which was interesting and that was quite interesting I had some good mentors through my um, student paramedic days and I was very fortunate that I had um, kind of got the opportunity to work with different paramedics as well uh, and different people and um, have a had a lot of very cool people around me from doctors nurses paramedics etc so I kind of like cherry-picked all the best bits from everybody and I thought oh that's good and etc and I, I was already part of WEM then as well that so I'm really really fortunate in that you know I had a lot of a lot of very influential inspiring figures around me to be able to to do that even more.
0: So, so Jamie <laughs> you've said a lot there. I'm just going to bring you right back to what you said about your unsuccessful three of those four times. Now you obviously had the determination to continue to apply you, ne- you didn't give up. On that sort of dream to become a paramedic, did you ever get feedback on on why you weren't successful and and when you had those repeated sort of setbacks, what what was it in you that made you want to keep going?
1: I, if I'm honest, I never received any any formal feedback, as it were. Uh, though I did ask for it, I kind of kept just looking at myself. I think the first time I applied, I wasn't in the right headspace. Kind of personally, and there was a lot going on in my life. Uh, things were you know you know difficult personally and I was kind of reflective on myself and you know you go to a psychometric test that probably comes across Um, and then uh, as I got to interviews and stuff it was obviously very hard to keep applying and thinking like you know what what else do you want what else do I need to do as I got to interviews and stuff I went to see it I went and got some coaching about interview practice and interview technique and presenting Um, Which was really interesting as well, because I always felt, although I was quite young, and obviously every young man thinks they can do things really well, um, it was interesting getting feedback on that little bit. I think that's kind of stood me me in good stead as well, because presenting and and academia and things like that are part of paramedicine. Whether you like it or not, that's the way the profession is now. Uh, And, you know, research and, and, you know, working for but I speak and present a lot. So... Even just learning those skills is really important, I think. So that was making it a almost a process in itself to learn how to do this before I could learn how to be a paramedic or learn those clinical skills or you know assessments or whatever. That was quite important. And then I think the other thing was I remember going to one interview and I'd put this presentation. I was really proud of this presentation and I was like, "I'm great. You want to employ me? I'll be the best paramedic you've ever had in your service." Blah blah blah. And that's not what I want to hear. What they want to hear is that you care about people and you're in this for the right reasons. Like me standing there going, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, trying to sell myself, which is what you're told to do, kind of takes it the wrong way. And I remember going to my the, the successful interview I was at and I was like, listen, I'm in this fit. Like I just want to go and help people and I want to treat patients. And it sounds corny, it sounds cheesy, but like, that ticks the boxes. And actually it's perfectly true. That's what I, I, I absolutely love being a paramedic and the little, kind of six-year-old boy inside me is like, like I get to go to work and I'm like buzzing, like, you know, blue lights and I get to drive around and whatever and be that person who everybody's like, oh, thank God you're here. Like, that feels quite good. That is perfectly true about me. Yeah. And I think you just have to be, have the confidence to be vulnerable enough to say like, this sounds a little bit daft and embarrassing, but I really like helping people. Like, it's as simple as that guy's. Um, and I'm really proud to be in an Service and X, Y and Z. And, once I said those things, they were like, yeah, we'll have you. So that was that.
0: Good to hear. So so Jamie, just, I'm just curious to know what courses or training did you do to prepare yourself during your time as a newly qualified paramedic? And I know you spent a long time as a kid, technician building up that experience and exposure, and that's clearly giving you some uh, you know, really good grounding for, for your role uh, as a paramedic. But, but is there anything that you did specifically that you would advise to someone else that helped you?
1: when i was still a technician i've always got this thing about i always like to push on doors and be in rooms that i'm not supposed to be in and where i feel a little bit out of place and like everyone's like oh, why are you here so when i was a technician it was 2014 i signed up to do the what was known as the hems crew course with the great north Air ambulance service for three weeks and um, managed to square it away with my job at the time and uh, pay the course fees and things and i was very fortunate to go on that course in get to spend three weeks being trained by some of the best clinicians certainly in the UK if not the world uh in you know pre-hospital critical care and get to spend time with the the, the four there was four of us in the course Three. it was me and three of the doctors so I was like what am I doing here and I remember telling somebody that I'd got a place on this course and they were like what do you mean you've got a place in the course which for me was a big tick Um, So that was one of the best things I ever did. I made friends for life. One of my best mates I met on that course. And just the, it wasn't even really like learning at all, like loads of fancy interventions and stuff like that. It was more about like learning about human factors and learning about working in teams and the multi-agency stuff as well. While it was really fun, like it really left an impression on me and I've really taken that forward in my career. And, you know, I'll go to a sort job now and I'll say, hello, I'm Jamie. How can I help you? Rather than like, you know, the trumpet's playing and like, oh, sort of here. Like, we're going to sort everything out and be heroes and stuff. Like, that's not what it's about. And I find myself continually fascinated by this human factors element. And I think that all started there. As I say, the coaching course for my, well, coaching I had for my uh, interview skills and presentation skills, I think was really valuable. I wouldn't be, you wouldn't be talking to me today if I hadn't done that, I guess. And then, yeah, I guess off the bat of that, just little things like like mountain rescue courses, just getting out there and and talking to people. I think 90% of being a paramedic is being able to talk to people, whether that's the patients, the patient's family, or the the clinicians and the other ambulance crew members, the firefighters, the police officers, the coast guard, the lifeboat guys, the mountain rescue, you name it. Like being able to talk to people and being personable, even when you're on a 12-hour shift and you knock it's really, really important. It really greases the wheels. So, yeah, I think that was probably the biggest one for me.
0: So it's really interesting. I liked that analogy about being in the room you think you shouldn't be in and sort of putting yourself out there. Now, it kind of leads me on to my next question quite nicely. Like, did you ever have that imposter syndrome when you were in these, these places? And and how did you overcome that fear of going on these courses? And say, if you did feel like you maybe your clinical skills weren't as high or you know, at the at an advanced level, where maybe some of the other other people were in that course, how did you overcome
1: that? I haven't. I've got imposter syndrome talking to you now. Like, I'm like, why you want to talk to me for it? I d- I don't think imposter syndrome ever goes away. Um, if it if you have it, I think it's a good thing. And how I manage that is, I don't know. I guess I just live with it a little bit. I don't really accept it yet. You know, I'll, I'll be doing things in the next few weeks, and I'm I'm still sitting thinking. You know why? Why? Why is it me? Why is it this? But it comes to a point where I am gonna just stop, and I, like the door, the, the door closes or whatever on the course or whatever, and I and I just press go and I give it my best shot, and that seems to work. And I think if you just, I think perfection is the enemy of the good. Like you, you need to. I am a perfectionist, and anybody who knows me will tell you will tell you that with some things, not everything, I am a perfectionist, and I, like I need to get things right. And yeah, I'm not going to go too far down that road, but I think sometimes you just need to say, "All right, I f- I feel this way. I've, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not really sure about this, but let's just give it a go. What's the worst can- that can happen?" And certainly, when you sign up for training courses, that's the place where you're supposed to feel like that. If you're not like the crew course, which is now known as the fem course, by the way, is designed. They design things to push you out of your comfort zone to push those human factors to stress you out and you know i get i learned that and then i'm when i'm teaching my mountain rescue medics the casualty care syllabus i will at some point start to push them and try to do some high fidelity simulations and people people say like really good at people putting people under pressure because i'll just stand there and say okay what we're doing now what we're doing now and not giving them many answers i'm and it's not because they're wrong or they're right i'm just trying to get them to think independently and and uh, not, look, not look to someone else for the answers because they're going to be it on the day. So, yeah, imposter syndrome is a funny one. If it if it's there, I think it's a good thing. Feeling uncomfortable is not necessarily a bad thing. I've, in the last year, upped my life, left NIAS, which was a really comfortable job. I'd been in NIAS for six years. I knew everybody, knew everyone in the hospital. I knew the processes. I enjoyed it. It was great and um, quite comfortable. Had a little station, blah, 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 regular crewmates and that. And to throw that to say, actually, I want to go and do something else and to put that to one side, even handing in your keys and your drugs and your uniform and the door closed behind you is really, really weird. And again, I'm, ab- I'm about to kind of go through a similar process once again. And I feel I'm already in that uncomfortable stage. Where I'm like, oh God, like what am I doing? Like like things are okay as they are, but there is a there is a point where you just have to Kind of step out the door and say, "Well, what happens happens, and everything's reversible. Like I can reverse this whole process, and say, so, yeah, I could go back to the northeast and probably apply for a job as a paramedic, and hopefully they'd have me back, or you know, I could have a, have a similar job or whatever somewhere, but they wouldn't. But yeah, like nothing's forever, nothing's set in stone, and if it doesn't work out, then that's that's okay. Like, what's wrong with what's wrong with failure? I don't, yeah, I think if you if you're gonna if you're gonna go down this road and you're gonna uh, be a param, you know, work in a paramedic role, like failure is going to be part of that journey because, well, first, like first and foremost, you can't save all of your patients, and at some point, you know, if your metric is who you save and who you don't, then you are going to fail at that sometimes. And if your metric is how good a clinician you are for that patient, regardless of their outcome, if you did your best, there will be things that you fail at because you're human at the end of the day. I feel like I'm talking to myself now because this is what I need to hear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's good. Now, Jamie, you mentioned something there. I'm, I'm just going to pick you up on it. So you mentioned you were going to go on this course to, I'm guessing, another crewmate. And the reaction of this crewmate was, what, you? You're on this course. Now, I'm curious, can you expand on that? So, So how did that make you feel? Did you... I mean, did this person want to be in that course? Did they say, did they say they wanted to be in the course? I'm just curious if that had any impact.
1: No, I think this. I think the person who I'm referring to was already kind of in that world, and I kind of that's why I kind of mentioned it to them as a bit of a. Have you got any kind of advice or anything? And I remember feeling quite a little bit surprised that they said that, but then reflecting on that now, like if someone said that to me, I'd be like probably have the same reaction. To be fair, not in a negative way. A little bit surprised. Maybe he's a bit defensive, a bit like, "Whoa, hang on!" Like I was only, I was only asking, and I was only talking about it. But I think that reaction is fair. Like a, a technician comes up to you and says, "By the way, I'm going to come and do a, a Hems Crew course, which I've got no place being on, but I've got myself a place on it because I've applied and, and you know here I am." Yeah, fair enough. Like just get out there. That's the point, isn't
0: it? So, Jamie, we're going to talk a little bit about your time with Mountain Rescue now. So, you've been a volunteer with Northumberland National Park over a decade and you've taken on the role uh, of medical officer and deputy team lead can you tell us about your experience with mountain rescue and just let's start with the beginning then And why did you join
1: yeah over a decade I sound ancient now yeah it's about it's, this will be my 12th year I think with the team why did I join I always struggle with these questions like why did you do this because my honest answer is I just want I just fancied it and I just wanted to I, again I was at uni the first time I was there, I was quite into my climbing, you know, doing bits and pieces. I'd been on a few expeditions and stuff. I was doing a sports science series. There was a little bit of like anatomy and physiology and stuff there. But yeah, just very into my outdoor sports and just some, it was just some, always something that appealed to me, I think. And yeah, I remember, I remember sitting kind of putting some stuff into Google and then it came up that there was a Northumberland team and I was like, all right, okay. And then I think a few weeks, you know, I put an application in of the, probably December, December 2010. Got an interview in the new year, you know, as a fresh-faced kind of 20-year-old still at uni. And then, yeah, you know, go through the training. Ten years ago, the training training process wasn't as robust as it is now. I'm, I think it's a lot better now. But I added six months uh, of tr- kind of training and I was a student at the time. So I just turned up to everything, really enjoyed it. Um, I think I missed like one exercise in in that time just because I was really enjoying it and it was, you know, it was something to do. It was like-minded people. It was kind of being, being that that element of being part of the team as well. I kind of got a little bit bored of like, high school rugby and football because, you know, you'd have, you'd go, you'd like say, oh, we'll have a match on a Saturday, Sunday and a uh, weekend and, you know, turn up and perform and you'd have maybe 50 or 70% of the team turn up and actually want to do something. Whereas like the thirty percent and I, I was got I got a bit bored in 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 the in my latter teen years of relying on other people for stuff. So I took I kinda of took up kickboxing and martial arts because that was all about, you know, if if I didn't turn up, then that was on me, etc. I quite enjoyed being part of that team where there was this ethos of like, we wanna be here, we wanna do all this stuff, and we'll teach you all this stuff as well.
0: So it was a long time. And in that time then you've had some exciting roles. So you've had the role of medical officer and deputy team lead and you mentioned previously that you're also a casualty carer can you just expand a little about what those roles involved
1: casualty carer uh, casualty care course god i can't remember when i first did that <laughs> i'd have to like look that up um but casualty care is basically the mountain rescue qualification to be able to provide medical care to patients in the mountain rescue environment And I deliberately haven't used the words first aid there because the scope of practice of a casualty carer goes way beyond first aid. They are trained in primary surveys, trauma assessments, uh, clinical observations. Um, They can give pretty much all of the paramedic drugs, give or take a few, including morphine, IM, uh, intramuscular, and, you know, nebulizers and all sorts of stuff. So they've got a a casualty carer has a range of assessment skills but they, and then they have a range of treatments um, which they can do autonomously. So it, it is quite an extensive scope of practice to be honest. And I remember training for that the first time and I was literally going to sit and just read stuff and, and just get, and just quite, I, mean, I would never say I've never been, ever been an academic person, but I really enjoyed like learning about that stuff. So yeah, casualty carers are, are medics for mountain rescue. I believe the RNLI have a similar kind of system. And they'll be like the kind of first responders before, you know, your, your traditional kind of paramedic turns up, etc. There are healthcare professionals. The team we've got paramedics, doctors, nurses. Uh, we've got a very strong uh, medical cadre in our in our team now. It's really it's really come gone from strength to strength. Paramedics, doctors, nurses, physios, uh, aspirin, AC, ACPs, et etc. Just building on that and in, and in, in getting all those perspectives, and you can build that into the casualty care syllabus. Now is quite nice. I took over as medical officer um twenty at uh, twenty three and that sounds I think about now that sounds ridiculous. um but again, I was kind of like really motivated to i had I had a little bit of experience of you know doing some stuff. I'd been a card care for a little while i was a I was working for St. John I think at the time still as a tech and yeah i I'd got a bit more experience under my belt uh, for a couple of years and I thought. There are some things I can do here and make make changes and get things and make things better in certain ways. I think I've been medical officer for ten years now, which is scary. But yeah, that I I feel that I'd like to think that the team's medical side is is transformed unrecognizably. I think we've imple- implemented a lot of change and we've grown with the team and the team's demands have changed things and we've implemented like you know new. Uh, research and in, in pre-hospital care practice and paramedic care practice as well and then being a deputy has been interesting a kind of um, medical officer and deputy have kind of synergized a little bit so I've maintained obviously the medical oversight of the team and um, with a view to kind of spreading out the job a bit more into a clinical governance group using the healthcare professionals around me um, to kind of offload some stuff and create a bit of a legacy where hopefully in the future i can hand that off to someone and you know pass on the button of medic officer um but yeah just getting into into the day-to-day running of the team which is a lot of now zoom meetings uh committee meetings and operations group meetings and reflecting on uh, things that have happened on operations what we could do differently what we're implementing and also learning about stuff that i don't know that much about like vehicles radios and things like that like i always say i do people not machines so to go to a meeting when we're talking about radio repeaters and things like that like a bit on my comfort zone but how can i drive this what do you need i don't think i need to it's probably better that if i'm if i'm helping you manage this project i don't understand what technically needs to be done because then i will not get caught up in the nuance of that i can just drive or help try and help to drive or help to uh, support what what needs to be done in, in a organizational manner i guess um And my role in sorts kind of helped that as well.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about casualty care? I believe you've been doing some uh, extended casualty care courses and training. Can you tell us about what that involves?
1: Uh, Yes. So casualty care is a uh, mountain rescue medical qualification, which trains and qualifies the candidate in pre-hospital care, so they're able to assess and treat and manage a range of kind of emergency medical conditions. Very, very base, very, very heavily based kind of on the paramedic syllabus um, With a view kind of is. Ambulance technician level with a few extra drugs. But yeah, the, the extended skills element allows uh, us to train someone to be a casualty carer. And then once they've achieved that standard twice in two ex- two separate exams, um, so at each exam they have to do a, two OSCEs for trauma and medical, and they have to um, achieve uh, quite a high pass mark in the uh, multi-choice questionnaire paper, which is like a little exam. After they've done that, they can put themselves forward to be extended skills, so they can be trained in extended skills for what that team deems as appropriate skills for our needs. Um, so we've selected uh, we selected cannulations, so IV cannulation and drugs, I gel insertion, and needle chest decompression again just so we can bring that element of elevated care really to to the to the patients and casualties we're called to and because they are where ambulances can't go there might not always be a helicopter available or be able to get to them and this person might be it for quite a long time so the more training and more confidence and confidence we can give our casualty carers to be able to deal with these situations autonomously and independently the better that's going to be for the patient. And also, even if there's a paramedic or a doctor or uh, one of the nurses or healthcare professionals on scene, they're also there to kind of become part of that emergency medical response team. So I've got someone there to bounce ideas off. They can catch, pull me up on mistakes or things that I'm missing and definitely have a, a wider platform to share that mental model of what's going on with this patient. And we train all casualty carers to be able to fit quite nicely into that kind of jigsaw puzzle of pre-hospital care providers so if a critical care team turn up and decide to um, sedate and ventilate a patient and do a rapid sequence induction because that's what they need to do we teach our casualty carers about that not because it's part of their scope of practice but because so that they can recognize and see what's going on and understand what what what's happening and why rather than just becoming like, whoa, this is like beyond beyond why, what I understand. And I feel like that's quite a useful thing. <laughs> the guys would agree with me about that, I don't know. But I always think that if you are aware of things beyond your scope, when those things happen in front of you, um, your brain will start to recognize them. It's basically just trying to bring training in line with human psychology a little bit and get that pattern recognition. Um, because I think the... The most interesting thing about teaching casualty care, having, having started as a casualty carer and become a paramedic and done everything backwards, if you like, I think that my brain has been wired over the last perhaps 32 years, perhaps you know, the last 10 years, 12 years of my career, to be able to go into a situation and, and see a situation in front of me which invokes a fight-or-flight response and have a different reaction to that. And say, okay, there's a threat there, but this isn't isn't a threat to me because I I I can deal with this. This is okay. And we've got that toolbox there of experiences and training and qualifications and mistakes and failures, and whatever. And trying to translate that mindset into somebody who's coming from a different background, you know, whether that's a plumber, a teacher, university worker, whatever, their brains aren't wired the same. So it's I think it's very interesting of just trying to get that across and um, try to give them the experience and the um, confidence they need to go out and do the job and I think we get that we do that quite successfully.
0: So Jamie um, I'm interested because you mentioned a really interesting point there like you came through paramedicine from being a casualty carer first do you think there's a difference with paramedics that come into the casualty care system do they have to adjust to it do they do they change the way they think I'm interested to get your view on it.
1: I'm probably not the best person to answer this because I, I don't know. I think it's interesting when you have a healthcare professional join mountain rescue team. I think it's interesting because they have a really, really niche skill set and that's really, really valuable. And that's a really good thing. And being a mountaineer and being able to read a map and navigate are brilliant. And but what we need to do is amalgamate those two things and you know, you must get somewhere in that the perfect mountain rescue person. Not that there is any such thing, but um So amalgamating those two things and synergizing the medical skill and medical proficiency with a low-resource, austere environment where the weather's going to be rubbish and it'll be dark and you're tired because it's two o'clock in the morning, (laughs) nothing ever happens on a sunny day. It's about pushing that comfort zone and being able to perform out in in that making that part of your comfort zone as well. And often, for me, it's been the most interesting with the doctors who've joined the team and we brought them outside the hospital and I've kind of said this over and over again that you are a really good doctor all i've done is put you under this hedge and like this is a different environment for you and your brain's not recognizing that your brain kind of partially recognizes what's going on because you know what to do with that body that patient in front of you but you're they're not in this same setting so it feels foreign so that's been quite an interesting journey i would say but yeah i think I, i would say the same happens with paramedics not having your Ambulance of kit is, is quite, a, I think that's quite a comfort sometimes. I'm continually, continuously trying things and working things to see how much medical kit I can get into the smaller and smaller bags.
0: I'm interested to know if there's any standout mountain rescue jobs that stick in your mind that you're willing to, to share or talk about.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's lots of various reasons. To speak to a kind of medical one, we had one, I think it was last summer where, Lady had fallen, not very far, but had uh, an open fracture of uh, a right lower leg, I think it was, was fractured. And, and again, it was just, wasn't just was too far away from anywhere. It wasn't um, like really extreme weather or anything. It was quite a nice evening, to be honest. That's where they're out climbing. But yeah, going to that and and being kind of third or fourth of the scene um, and just being able to bring that paramedic level care to that patient was really, really satisfying. And being able to um, recognise when that, I'd reached my limit of my scope and actually needed to call in for their support, etc. That was really interesting. The other jobs. So one job a few years ago, we just finished a rescue cover uh, where we'd been looking after a fell race for a day. And we were standing in the pub and I was literally, literally at the bar just about to get a pint. And the, my mate next to me said, Oh, I've got a job. And I was like, Oh yeah, really funny. He said, like, no, no, I've got a job. Jobs just come in. I was like, you're joking. And it was, it, it was at a place called the Drakestone, which is not too far from where we were. Um, I think we could see it out the window actually. And it was basically a young lad, maybe he's 10, 12 years old. We'd got on top of it. It's quite easy to climb onto, but it's quite a bit of a like a bit of a dragon's back of a rock. So couldn't then reverse and get down confidently. So they'd call for us, rightly so. Went up there and I climbed on the top. And he was a little bit stressed out, but he was fine. There was nothing medically to do. And I was bit I was like, all right, mate, shall we uh why don't you put this coat on a up? because it was a little bit windy in the kind of evening evening wind and then I was like mate why don't we why don't we have a selfie and chill out a bit and he was like yeah and he just totally changed his whole mindset and the whole element of being stuck on this rock and being scared like just dissipated and I think from that it was like that was kind of one of the first times I was like like it's not all about ropes and carabiners and you know um, swinging out of helicopters and uh, rescuing people and doing Gucci medicine. It's just about, you know, taking a sting out of the situation and saying, right, how can we deal with this really, really basic and really, really simply? But yeah, 12 years in the team, man, there must be loads. There is loads of jobs I could go on for ages.
0: So, Jamie, I know you could go on for ages, but we'll, we'll move on. I'm so interested to know more about your uh, recent role. So can you tell us more about your role with SORT, so that special operations response team?
1: So the Special Operations Response Team, SORT team in Scotland is basically Scotland's version of HEART. Scottish HEART team doesn't translate very well as an acronym so uh, it's SORT up north and we have a National Ambulance Service in Scotland so it's a little bit different to England where you've got seven or eight ambulance services covering regions. Scotland is the Scottish Ambulance Service which is broken down into regions a little bit um, but it is a National Ambulance Service so we have three sort teams uh we have east team we have the west team and the north team in edinburgh glasgow and aberdeen respectively are their bases and yeah so we provide specialist rescue so we'll go to water jobs i'm a swift water rescue technician we will go to uh support other services so we'll go support the fire service at fires uh helping out that so we are trained in self-contained breathing apparatus. In hazmat, so PRPS suits and gas tight suits and things, etc. Uh, and then police will support with security support operations, public order stuff, bits and pieces like that. And yeah, we just bring that kind of day-to-day, it's that that kind of response where there is five or six um, paramedics who are ready to respond to to the big incidents. We bring, you know, five or six paramedics. We've got command training, logist training. We understand the Jessup principles quite well, so we're quite confident in challenging our partners in, in the ambulance service or indeed other agencies to say, it's been 15 minutes, guys, we need to have a multi-agency meeting and share that, share the decisions and, and what's going on and what's everyone thinking. I think it's really interesting because I think one of the things that inspired me to kind of do all this stuff was um, 9-11, and I was about 11 at that. I remember coming home to school and the whole fallout of that was really, it really struck a chord with me. Uh, and you look back at the nine eleven commission report, and you look at the Kerslake report from Manchester, uh, you can look at 7-7, et cetera, we always make the same mistakes. It's basically just talking to each other in the human factors element going back to that, and you know, implementing these Jessup principles and things. So I think that's been really valuable because I, I've been able to kind of positively influence the outcome of jobs just by bringing that element of, hello, I'm Jamie, what's your name? Right, let's... let's Let's make friends. Let's get on board with each other. We we'll also we also provide a kind of rapid response car. And if there's enough people on the team, we are held for obviously um, big jobs. But if there's enough people on the team, we will put out an ambulance and help out in division and stuff. So we'll go to normal jobs because we're all paramedics and we have to maintain our clinical competence as well. And as part of that, we were, we have a car which goes to, which is called, the has an element of 3RU it's called. Um, so it's the rapid response resuscitation. Uh, unit there's three r's and a u which is basically just a, a bit of training a bit of leadership that in a, in a lucas device uh, etc that comes into cardiac arrest situation and we'll just kind of provide that element of direction and leadership and i've really quite enjoyed that to be honest i think that's again going back to that human factors element is has been really interesting to kind of go into those jobs and deal with the challenges of that job and deal with the challenges of uh what are the things around those jobs and yeah just it's an area of paramedicine that I'm quite interested in is that critical care ele- element and that ALS element.
0: So how did you find the transition into the sort role from being a role paramedic? Was there a lot of crossover or was there lots of new things and things you'd not really done before?
1: Well so when I joined we did our what was called an an IFA course. Which is basically initial foundation incident response course. Um, so it was eight weeks of training. I think with two weeks of exams at the end. And you know you trained in all the types of of PPE we use, so hazmat suits, water rescue elements, uh, bits and pieces like that. SCBA courses and stuff from the fire service, uh, and utilize you know doing a logist course, a commanders course, being able to confidently. Take command of a scene, and just loads and loads of stuff, with an element of clinical effectiveness in all of it as a paramedic, um, which is really interesting. Because the first I was like, how am I going to keep up all of these competencies and still remain competent as a paramedic, which has been a it, it is an interesting challenge of being in a sort or heart team, I think, or any specialist resource, or well, indeed being a paramedic, to be honest. So yeah, I think that that was that was quite a transition, and obviously transition from. Being, working for the North East Ambulance Service for six years, coming into the Scottish Ambulance Service and doing the same job, but differently and having different rules and regulations and the just ways of working, to be honest, and work is imagined and work as done and how those things differ. it's It's been a really interesting challenge, to be honest. And I think the biggest element of joining SORT was basically being prepared to turn up and be like, yeah, I'm here, I'm it for the day. Um, often we're asked to act up as like um, team leader for the day and take the phone and command instance and stuff. And I feel like I've kind of roasted that challenge really. It's been really interesting and that's, you know, led to other stuff now, so I'm quite pleased.
0: How have you found that, that then taking on that that leadership role? Have you adjusted it okay or did you again, do you feel a little bit sort of lacking in experience in that area or do you feel like you've just really come into your own with it?
1: I identify with all three of those elements I feel like my time in mountain rescue has given me the confidence to command scenes a little bit from a medical perspective. And I'm quite happy doing that. And that's a big thing of being in this all team is I, I accept that that's my job. And when I turn up to work, I don't know what's going to happen today. The North team that I'm in covers the North of Scotland. So, you know, we could be flown to, you know, Orkney or Firzo or somewhere remote to go and do some stuff or indeed just, you know, you're not your shift on time and you stay there overnight kind of thing. And you don't know what's going to happen again in a similar vein. The terrorist threat in the UK has been quite high for quite a while now. I kind of go to work with the, with the, the mindset that, that I might have to go to today, the worst day of my life, wearing some horrible PPE, which I can't really see out of and still perform as a paramedic and do the best that I can. That was an interesting psychological shift. And I'm, it's quite interesting to articulate that to be honest and then the other side of that has been quite interesting because it's been a big challenge because the element of being a specialist resource and turning up to a scene especially there's paramedics already there they've taken ownership of that scene absolutely correctly and they are managing it and they're managing it well and sometimes there's an element of oh we don't need you what are you doing here and we're we are as a team just coming to help out. We're not trying to take over. Uh, we're all paramedics, just the same. We all think the same. I think we all have the same thought processes. Often, when you you're at jobs, you'll find you know you're at the same script, and you say you yourself say things in stereo with your crewmates and stuff. It's the same thing there, and like turning up to scenes and being like, you know, hello, uh, you know, we're here. This is what how we see what needs to happen next, or be even being at a scene and having crews come into that. Just trying to kind of flatten that, flatten that gradient of there is no hierarchy here. We're all on the same, we're on the same team, and actually, we can see something that you didn't, or you see something that we didn't, and this can make things better. And just being open to that, I've been quite reflective about how I've been at scenes, how I've come across it with people, and it, there is an element of downtime and stuart so which I think is useful because it allows us to go and practice all those competencies that we need to keep up. Um, so even if it was just going through my bag of SRT kit and make sure it's all there and I, it's ready to go when I need it or, or whatever system it is, even if it's just, you know, your daily checks in the morning, it takes a little bit longer because you've got to check your SCBA sets every day. You've got to check that you've got the right size PRPS suit and gas tight suit. Um, it's not just checking your medical kit and that's all there, but you do that as well. So yeah, I think the variety and the absolute plethora of, of competencies and stuff you've got to do has been challenging. And And again, the, going into scenes and especially that 3RU element of going into that scene and trying to imp- to optimize that resuscitative effort and not being seen as a as a, someone who's trying to take take charge of a scene that you're not part of yet.
0: So it's interesting, you mentioned a little bit about skill fate there and you mentioned that there was downtime within the sort role. So within that downtime then, do you try and maximize optimally by doing all the training and, and trying to whether it's your clinical skills or sort of specific role training, do you, do you actually come together as a group and train when you're not on a job or going to a job?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think you get down, downtime in sorts, Uh, or in any specialist resource, resource, there's probably more overt downtime. Whereas a, as an ambulance crew, I felt that you still got downtime, whether that's in the car as is just you and your crewmate having a laugh or... Uh, on station or, or whatever that may be there is a little bit more kind of obvious you're back on station you're not with a patient you're not being hammered anymore and yeah uh, we get training shifts we get three training shifts every six weeks where there will be a, a planned element uh so we'll go through you know um scba or hazmat whatever skill we need to at that point my last um my last training shifts were cancelled just because of the demand level as well so in this set, we've been out in an ambulance doing paramedic work, so just keeping that clinical stuff up. And for me, it's been about definitely if I'm not feeling super confident about an area of clinical practice, um, just revisiting that via various ways and means. There's loads and loads of ways to do CPD. I think that's really useful. You can get creative with it and, and kind of do what you want with it. Um, and we do come together and we, we do little things. We have to maintain quite a high standard of fitness, so... Um, sometimes we come together and do little little workouts you know get the get the BA out and stuff and so like last last September we did a little 9-11 challenge with a full kind of firefighter kit and ground suits on and we uh we a step like a step climb the towers challenge in the in the station which was which was fun and it kind of poignant as well it was quite cool so it gave it a bit more a bit more meaningfulness as well but yeah we, I would say we definitely try and do some stuff there is an element of just kicking back and relaxing now and then because I think that's important and I think that paramedics and and clinicians on double crew ambulances need more of that because it makes the job more sustainable because we're just human at the end of the day and at the minute you know everybody's aware of the news and stuff and it's it's coming to a head at the minute i think but i think that's an element that needs to be looked at that you know rest recuperation and, and ultimately debriefing we get a lot of time to debrief jobs and talk about things and how we could do things better and stuff um which is really really valuable as well
0: and have you had any challenging or really testing jobs within your SORT role?
1: So part of the 3RU element, I've been to quite a lot of cardiac arrests where I've gone in as a first response and indeed uh, to back up the crews and, and support that that effort. We've been to quite a lot of water rescues uh, recently. Our big RTCs, is a big um, like bypass road in, up in Aberdeen, so we get quite a lot of stuff on there. A lot of kind of stand up to stand down as well. That's quite cool. Like It makes you, it kind of keeps you sharp. Like you, when you're on the way to a job, I'm thinking about what we're going to be doing. Yeah, it's been some interesting interesting jobs and stuff, yeah.
0: I'm interested to know what type of person that you think would thrive within the sort role.
1: I think somebody who, somebody who is not afraid to share what they're thinking, share their mental model, but also kind of model that vulnerability and, and be open to discussing things on a, on a level playing field i think that's really useful somebody who is interested and keen in learning about stuff so hazmat, hazardous uh, has this material uh, in cbrn bin and isn't just about knowing which suit to put on when it's about knowing what you're going into and what chemical is that and what that does and how you manage the patients you know once they have been rescued as well you might not be the one in the suit and i think somebody for me it's somebody who's got that attention to detail to kind of just come into those scenes and you know we're at a cardiac arrest. All right, but we've got a sort response here. So can we bring some scene lighting in and make it, you know, like a better scene? Can we improve the environment? Can we think outside the box a little bit more, I think, with that attention to detail. And again, just that psychological resilience of being able to come to work, which I think if we all stood back and reflected on this, we probably do have another look at this, but You want to come to work and go, Okay, um, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I know that um, there's a potential that I'm going to be stood for 20 minutes in a gas tight suit, having to rescue somebody or, you know, swim around in a cold river um, as an SRT response or have a difficult conversation with a firefighter or a police officer or whatever and accepting that and accepting that you're not always going to get it right you're not always perfect sometimes you do have to upset some people to get the job done and be open to that as well
0: and what advice would you give to someone that was interested in the role of a sort paramedic
1: don't be scared just apply they let me in so <laughs> <laughs> it can't be that hard yeah no don't don't be scared especially in Scotland there's no like minimum qualify minimum qualification level you don't have to be out of your NQP and stuff etc I think if you're willing to learn You're keen you, you know interested And you like working in teams and, and working and bouncing off other people And are prepared to reflect And mould yourself within that Go for it But yeah Just push the door and see To be honest Anybody can go for it um, I would encourage anybody To apply for it I think it's a really good And developing role as well
0: yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Now, Jamie, can you tell us more about your new exciting role as a UK international search and rescue medical team volunteer? I believe it was quite an intensive selection process.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. Unless anybody on the team's listening, it was dead easy. No, I'm joking. It was It was absolutely honking. Yeah, so the UK ISAR team is the fire and rescues team. So the UK, United Kingdom's Fire and Rescue Service, humanitarian arm. And so there is, I think it's 14 or 15 services across the country who have an element to do with ISO. Fortunately for me, Scottish Fire and Rescue are involved with that. So um, I've got kind of a home element, which is great. Um, So I can be attached to them quite easily. And yeah, so they'll respond to disaster zones across the globe. So traditionally earthquakes after after tsunamis bits uh, and pieces and kind of looking into f- uh, expanding the flooding zones and things like that uh, now so as part of that they're quite short deployments uh, kind of 10 days 2 weeks is the traditional kind of view because they're there for that initial response phase uh, like they went out to Nepal um, and were part of that initial response phase as well but as part of that they have a, a USAR medical team um, which is made up of doctors, nurses uh, and paramedics and a couple of vets at the minute because we have some search dogs and they're there to look after that. So we are there to look after the firefighters predominantly who are going into to uh, rescue uh, victims of the disaster and survivors, etc. And then provide an element of um, kind of public health care and use our care. But having that ability to go forward into the hot zone and, and treat patients and uh, provide that high level of medical care is the idea so yeah the selection for that was quite a robust there was a uh, 13 of us i think on the selection course uh very very strong individuals um again it was one of those moments when i arrived at the train station and met everybody else i was like i'm not really supposed to be in this room this is crazy i did know a few of them which was great uh it was really cool uh it was really nice to work with those people in those situations but yeah it was just 36 hours of getting really tired and um, we had a think we had about two two hours sleep within that 36 hours but yeah just getting constantly drilled not really know knowing what's going to happen next lots and lots of high fidelity scenarios which were really interested in our rigs and then being transported out to into um, quite a rural location and, and putting up a base of operations and having their camp and keep that clean and things and then yeah going out and rescuing people and improvising stuff. And you didn't always have the kit and you didn't have all the little stuff that you need. And a lot of it was very, to me, it was very, we're in a dangerous place. Let's not be in a dangerous place. I think there's a bit of people want to do all this Gucci stuff and the sexy medicine and stuff and all this go to bad places and do all this mad rescuing and stuff. Let's get the patient and us and take us out of the bad place and go and do some good medicine in a good place. I think that's a much better place to do things because then you're not scared and you're focused on your patient rather than the what's going to come down in your head and things like that and to be honest i think that comes from my time with sort really is that you know hot zone working? it i don't want to do that i don't want to be there if i don't have to put that horrendous suit on then great if i can take this helmet off then even better let's go and do this somewhere safe and uh, the back of an ambulance or indeed you know wherever that may be that's the place to do it so that was very much my approach to just do as much for the patients as I could. And yeah, try and manage manage things. At one point, oh, a couple of points, there was a few hostage situations which I had to deal with, where we were like kind of mock-taking hostage. And that was interesting, having done a little bit of training and, and what to do in those situations. That was quite interesting to like go through a, a simulated version of that uh, and try and deal with that. So it was really cool. And again, managed to let me in. So,
0: <laughs> and what was it specifically about this role that like really made you want to go for it, knowing how competitive it was going to be? Again,
1: I'm going to go back to that ridiculous base kind of cheese question of like the answer of that. I really want to help people, and again, kind of thinking on the, what you've what we've talked about already is that when I was like 11 years old and watching the Twin Towers fall down in New York um, after school that day, I was like, I just have this. I feel like since that day, there's been this, like, just want to help sort things out. Just want to help people. But yeah, helping people and, and going and doing the job. Like, I've trained hard and I've worked hard for a lot of years now, as you keep pointing out, <laughs> to be good at what I do. And I feel like I am good at what I do and I have that confidence. And I would like to be able to provide that in this situation, in, in whatever situation I can, to be honest. Like, that's what I'm about should probably start having more holidays and stuff rather than doing medicine, but that's where I'm at at the minute, so.
0: So on the selection then, you were faced with all these challenges and tasks and it's it's clear that your previous experience through SORT, through Mountain Rescue has helped and it, and it did help clearly with, with the selection process. I'm curious to know, was there anything that really tested you or put you out of your comfort zone that you weren't expecting or you've not faced before?
1: Yes, lots of things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There was, I don't want to give the game away too much, but there was one scenario where we'd been doing some water stuff in the morning, so water rescue elements and stuff, and being cold and wet, and we're obviously tired, and we were getting pushed through that. Really enjoyed that. And then we'd been doing some working at height stuff, so we'd been climbing towers and abseiling bits and pieces, where you know, asked a load of questions at the top of the tower, you know, just to test your confidence in these places. Then going and sitting on a on you know in this other place and doing a little job interview and just trying to be, I guess just trying to be real with it to be honest and not give like you know the answer. I was just like, I think one of the questions was what are you going to do if you need to give this drug, and I was like, got no idea. I would come and ask one of you guys because you know far more about that than I do. And So yeah, just being authentic, I suppose. Yeah, so I finished that interview and then I came back over and they said, "Oh, um, you are going to be the team leader for this task." and there's going to be a scenario um go and brief the guys kind of thing so we had some like collective collective medical kit and we had our kind of personal kit which we were looking after um because it kept getting nicked <laughs> we left it anywhere and yeah going in a scenario where there was multiple casualties um there was an injured dog which uh which was main my main concern <laughs> there was then a situation where I sent somebody off to go and do something, they became injured and didn't come back and having to make decisions and be like, right, I'm not sh- really sure what's going on here, but this is the best thing I can do right now. And then coming back and finding the rest of the team that I'd left in place had been kidnapped and stuff. And then I was being uh, having to negotiate for their kind of releasing things and dealing with that. That was quite challenging in that, uh, I've never had to negotiate for someone's release before. I didn't know whether I was doing the right thing or not. I, I absolutely didn't know what the answers were, which I suppose was the hardest part of selection. Like a lot of the, be told to be somewhere at a certain time and you'd be there and nothing would happen for 40 minutes. And it's like waiting for your plane at the airport. Like you can't do anything about it. So you just got to kind of kick back and relax and try and get some sleep and use the five bar gate as a pillow kind of thing. So it was interesting. There was a lot of situations I was in that were new to me. I've never been taken hostage in touch, with i am never taken hostage, but that was new. But just trying to deal with that the best way I could. It was interesting. I think it certainly did push me my comfort zone. It gave you a challenge and you needed to rise to that challenge, I suppose.
0: So, Jamie, can you tell us about your teaching role with World Extreme Medicine and what got you involved with WEM?
1: Yes. So, WEM has been a quite a big part of my life, to be honest, for seven or eight years now. I... First got involved with WEM, I went on Polar Medicine in Norway uh, in February 2014, and I have the dubious honour of being the first delegate medevac from WEM course. Um, so I didn't complete the course, so I haven't got a certificate or anything, but most of it in the most northern ITU in the world, which was an interesting experience, Uh, and that was quite formative. Um, I went to the conference later that year, um, and Mike Cole was one of the faculty on my polar medicine course and as the nurse and, uh, and advanced nurse practitioner who took care of me when i became ill i had a lot of, i have a lot of time for mike he's an absolute gentleman of a man but yeah I bumped into him, him again and a few others and a gentleman called ben cooper who we got chatting to in the bar and he basically said oh like where are you from and i say like, newcastle where are you from and he was like well sheffield but i'm from Whitley Bay, which is quite a close Newcastle kind of thing. And then it transpired that Ben had been in my Martin Rescue team before my time, and I'd always heard stories about Ben, the nurse who'd gone off to Antarctica and done X, Y, and Z. And then things kind of snowballed from there. I uh, also met, out on holiday, Wem's medical director called Alex Rowe. Dr. Alex Rowe, he again is a gentleman and someone I worked with who me and him were selected for the UK ISAR medical team. Alex is a really, really good doctor, a really good clinician um, and just a really nice bloke, to be honest. So yeah, a chance meeting with him, another conversation and I was invited to teach at Keswick um, the following kind of March. I was late to that course because I'd be nice climbing and I think my flight was slightly delayed or something had come up. So I, I was a day late and then I, I taught on that course. And I remember um, teaching with um, Owen Walker, the trauma lead for WEM. we were teaching RTCs and I remember thinking like oh this is Owen Walker he knows his stuff he's I think he was still London Hems at the time like really really eminent paramedic and someone I looked up to Um, not that he knew that (laughs) but yeah I remember having this moment where I was like right I really either have to step up here and this is going to be a thing or I just don't step up and you know that's going to be this is going to be it because I'm not going to I'm not going to rise to this, and I, I distinctly remember kind of rising this occasion and pushing myself to speak more and interact a bit more and blah blah blah. blah. And I remember Owen turning around to me then going, "Oh, mate, that was really good. Like you really know your stuff. Like it was great, kind of working with you." Or in my in my memory, that's what he said. So again, it was again just being part of of a, a, a kind of a door being presented, pushing on that door. And the amazing people who um, recruit to be in their faculty are very accepted and they're very, or they're all fantastic mentors in their own little ways. So yeah, that was kind of my beginnings. And yeah, it's been it's been a roller coaster since then and I've directed lots of courses so and, and taught on many courses. So across the UK, in Slovenia, uh, both Alpine and exhibition medicine, the generic course kind of thing. And then leading to kind of, through lockdown thinking well actually why don't we get women mountain rescue to kind of come together and synergize and present that as a course uh where of course i met you so yeah i designed that course put together and it's now run for i think we did the second one this year last year sorry um which went kind of went from strength to strength and is going to be um now part of the master's program so World actually Medicine is a f- fantastic organization it's forward-thinking they're open to ideas. And again, like y- you can be who you are, and that's kind of that's all right. Like everybody gets accepted. I, I, that's probably one of my favorite things about it. And the, out of all of the things I do and all of the cool stuff I get to do, it's probably the best job satisfaction that I get because you'll meet people on courses and, and the delegates or the kids that I lovingly refer to them as. And you'll say, Oh, so what's your kind of plan? What's your adventure? What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? And some of them have an idea, some people don't, whatever, but down the line on social media or indeed like in person or another course or conference or, or wherever, you get to hear about what they've been doing. And it's just like, oh, that's really cool. Like watching that journey happen. And then, you know, to some of them becoming faculty with Willish Medicine as well now, that's probably one of the, my favorite aspects of that is watching you give someone some ideas and top tips and bits and pieces and hopefully being useful and then them going off and making it their own and having some, all of the, well, achieving their dreams, really, as corny as it sounds like that's just like the best bit of the whole thing for me. But yeah, it's a really cool job. You've
0: it's had fun. such a you know, significant involvement in, in the history with WEM and I didn't know, I didn't know all those things at the start, especially the medical evacuation. You get that one secret. <laughs> um. <laughs> so just going on to, the course being a course director so you became a course director of the fundamentals of search and rescue course which I did uh, join and do that course and met yourself an amazing course I highly recommend it I learned so much not just about search and rescue but about yourself and it was great to meet other people do things that put yourself at your comfort zone and it was just I loved it so much just because it just put you out in different environment with different people testing yourself and you just come away with like a newfound enthusiasm and confidence and it's just really sort of invigorating and I highly recommend it so can you give us a little bit of insight what the fundamentals of SAR course involved and who do you think would benefit from that course?
1: Thank you for saying that things um that that's the job satisfaction right there that I'm talking about like you saying those things is just like yes like goals achieved i'll sleep well tonight what it involves the SARC also basically my theory with the SARC course was um minimize kind of didactic teaching give you a real experience of what it's like to be in a mountain rescue team again without giving too much away we we kind of force you into situations where you have to act a certain way you have to do things which will be probably outside of a lot of people's comfort zones. I make sure it's outside your comfort zone. It's within your comfort zone. I'll find something that's not. Um, And Ben Cooper, who is my kind of partner in crime on this course, is really good at kind of balancing me out. So while I want to drag people out of bed at two o'clock in the morning, he's saying, no, no, let them sleep. Like we'll do some stuff tomorrow. And I think that kind of balances my energy really well. So um, that's really cool and really works well. But yeah, we take, you through technical rope rescue and give you an introduction kind of it would, it would be difficult to teach a whole rope rescue course you'd need a week in itself so we give you a fundamental kind of system to use or a few ideas to use and they are what we use in the team we do a little bit of water rescue and again i can't give you a whole srt course but we can introduce it to the hydrology we can introduce you to you know the hierarchy rescue things like that and get you actually thinking as we do when we're out on our, uh, on our kind of operations. And then, yeah, getting out in the hills, getting out in the environment, and, yeah, call-outs happening. Uh, the Worst time, I think it was your course, where we'd done a few bits and pieces, and then on the night, I went and put my pajamas on and said, right, we're not, there's no surprises tonight, it's all right, everyone chill out. Then the actual kind of call-out came and those were, who were on the live mountain rescue team and operational member, members all had to stand up after being out all day as well and go out and do a rescue for real, which like wasn't planned. I couldn't have planned it better. And for me, it just demonstrated the whole kind of ethos is that what I'm trying to put across is that this happens at any time and you have to be willing to step up and say, yes, I'll go or whatever, get there and then perform to a a high standard. Like if, if it's your, you know, your loved one out there who needs to be rescued, what would you want people to be like? So for, for to be putting you guys through all that and then for it to happen for, for to for real when we're all tired and we don't want to go out and having to do that and demonstrate this is what it's all about was like really good and it was a good little rescue with a good outcome and stuff. So that was that was quite nice. And then this year we kind of changed a few things. So integrated a little bit more with the team. Um there's some search dogs involved. The big kind of exercises and stuff at the end go from strength to strength and more ideas and more uh, more additions next year, hopefully.
0: So Jamie, can you tell us a little bit more now about your training and your uh, membership with British Association of Ski Patrollers?
1: So I've been a member of the ski patrol. I've been a member of the BASP for a number of years now. And I've always said, really want to do the the, the kind of trainee patrollers course. Uh, you have to get your logbook and you've got a load of competencies to sign off. And again, as I said before, like paramedic, the medical competencies, no problem. I'm a paramedic. I should be competent in these things. But then it's about demonstrating your proficiency at skiing, being able to assess a slope, being able to manage hazards, utilize rescue equipment, different techniques, etc. So I did the trainee patrollers course back in February last year for a week up at Glen Shea Mountain in the ski resort there. Again, some fantastic teachers on that course who really gave us a a really good insight into years and years of experience. Yeah, particularly Kate. Um, She was fantastic. And then from there, it's about, so you kind of, I'm qualified as a trainee patroller now. And it's about getting your days out on the hill and patrolling and stuff. And, you know, managing slopes, as I say, assessing hazards, dealing with those things and being part of a, a big team again, which is, i'm kind of i feel like i'm kind of new in that journey I'm pretty junior as i am with uk i saw but those are really interesting challenges and um i feel like that my skill set and my background kind of lends itself quite well to those things so yeah, it's, it's a little bit on the edge of my comfort zone but i'm trying to expand that so it's been an interesting journey so far
0: having spent a lot of your career in all these different environments so with uk i saw- um, more recently, and BASP, and the WEM courses that you teach on, Time With Sorts, and Mountain Rescue. Has this given you a different perspective on your career and personal life, or changed anything?
1: Yes, it absolutely has, and it must have. I think that my perspective has been changed more on the human experiences that I've had there, so you know, you do training courses and you do paramedic course, you do your ski patrol, you do your mountain rescue, you know, rope rescue technician, whatever course it is, that's a training course. They're telling you how to deal with situations as you come across them, which are fun and that's interesting and stuff. But I always kind of say, said that people, like, there's no, I've never really had a plan. I don't really know what I'm doing, um, which looking back, the dots connect and looking forward, I kind of do know what I'm, where I'm going and where I want to go, but kind of just, pushing doors along the way a little bit and seeing where things go and where things don't go as well. Like I'm not always successful at stuff. I'm not always, I don't always get into the the things that I want to do and I have to go back and reevaluate. So that's fine. That's part of the process. I think the biggest things that have changed my perspective in life, both personally um, and in my career have been the things that have happened to me uh, personally. So probably the Biggest one in the last few years has been my uh, younger sister Emily passing away very suddenly. You know, going from being a, a fit and healthy 16 year old to you know, two or three weeks of chaos and madness and all sorts of medical stuff going on. Which, as a paramedic and understanding uh, it to an extent and standing a lot more now, having reflected on it, that was it was. Well, Obviously, very difficult. It's different when it's very different when it's your own, especially when it's your little sister. I think that's been the biggest one of the well is the biggest thing touched with that ever happens to me personally in my life. That that's been very formative. That was back in twenty eighteen. Obviously, there's been a huge global pandemic and things since then. And in a way, I was quite glad for the time in lockdown to kind of press pause a little bit. I didn't stop going to work or anything, but you know, the extracurricular stuff kind of took a backseat. The mountain rescue was still kept going. You know, we were still training stuff. We still got competencies to keep up. But yeah, being able to kind of step back a little bit was useful. And started going to see a, a therapist. And that journey was really interesting. I went with kind of preconceived ideas about what was going to happen in that experience, what was going to, what I was going to talk about, how I was going to deal with this, etc. And that, that wasn't how it played out, which was really interesting. And for the first, I think it was for like the first, I don't know, Maybe three, four, five weeks. I used to turn up, sit for an hour, not really say much. And then in the last 10 minutes, I would start saying loads of stuff. So I kind of learned that, you know, some bits about me where mm-hmm. I do have to learn to trust people and I do, I could be more open about bits and pieces and stuff. And I'm, I guess that's why I'm talking about this now. Yeah, that was, that was really interesting. And then, yeah, the things that came up through that and that it wasn't just that experience of my sister passing away. Mm-hmm there are four or five formative experiences in my life which have made me who I am you know plus or minus so um and about how not necessarily how to deal with life and stuff but just learning about yourself and looking back and thinking well this is how this has affected you and to be honest just being able to sit and tell someone the story helps I, th- I think my therapist put it in a way where just to be able to tell that story and put it in an order in your head and organize your thoughts on it is really, really useful. And have have someone kind of almost didactically read it back to you, kind of forms those memories. And again, it's kind of, you're dealing with your brain and it's not designed to make you feel nice. It's designed to keep you alive. So you're dealing with this situation and this is what the process you have to go through. And I don't think anyone can deal with things like that perfectly or well. Clearly I didn't. You know, there was things that, I, the things I was feeling and, and, you know, I would do stuff like, you know, just not go to the gym for weeks or, or whatever, uh, which was not who I wanted to be. And I was like, why am I being like this and things like that and being impatient with people and stuff. And, like, and I still have an element of these things and whether that's just me or what. But yeah, that was, those things were the biggest kind of influence. And then the dealing with the world after Emily dies, Going back to work and I had 23 days off work because I was very much of the of the opinion that if I don't go back and start, start out again this journey and keep pushing for what I want to go to, I'm not going to do it because it's going to just be too hard a door to push and it's going to kind of scab over and I don't want to go near that. So I really need to push that now. And I think kind of reflecting on that and reflecting on that kind of mentality that's where I'm falling down a little bit, like I'd really can't, really struggles when i'm if if I'm stopping or there's nothing going on, that's where I really struggle because I like being on the go, I like being busy, I like being a paramedic, I like going and saving the world and whatever, but ultimately if if I stop, I kind of I don't fault a bit as such, but I don't I, it's not a place where I like to be, I like to be busy and whatever. I don't think I'm necessarily distracting myself but that's my that's part of my coping mechanism and strategy for life at the minute so yeah definitely the things that things that happen to you in your career and things that have happened to me in my career have been formative and have definitely changed my perspective but the things that really hit home and are really personal and have massively massively changed my perspective are the things that are life-changing and are have rippling effects for my whole world and life.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Jamie. Now, I met you a few years back as a student paramedic, and I got to know you more through attending the WEM courses and conferences. I got a real sense that you love adventure, exploring the unknown and new challenges. You don't shy away from the unknown or the uncomfortable. And your drive and passion for what you do really stands out in all your roles. And you just demonstrate this sense of pride and achievement for what you do in your work. Where has this drive come from and why do you continuously challenge yourself?
1: I think I've always been quite driven to achieve things. I think my parents were a big driver in that. My dad works his, works, and has worked his socks off all his life. My mum, was, as I've said, was a nurse and I think I was very aware of her doing long hours and going to work at strange times and stuff and then still being a world-class mum to me and my brother and my sister nightmares as we were (laughs) to be honest uh, and again since Emily passed and you know there's been loads of uh, kind of formative experiences and stuff has happened to me in my life which has just reaffirmed that life's short I get the privilege and the curse of seeing it go how it ends quite a lot in my line of work in our line of work and what can happen and you know, there are some fantastic moments as a paramedic, but you are ultimately there to, to save lives and be there for people on their worst day so I think that kind of drives me to be like I just want to go out of there and try and be the best that I can in every way not perfect I know I'm not going to do that I've got to accept that at some point but to yeah to not to not. I don't want to say waste my time but to just yeah get after it a little bit and I'm not going to say something like oh, live without regrets because like there's loads of stuff I regret doing. Like, what did I do? Why did I say that? I'll listen back to this with you and I'll be like, oh God, why did I say that? What am I talking about? That's not what it's about. I think you've got regrets and you've got, I'll drive along and go, oh, I think like, everyone's got that moment where they go, oh, why did I do that? But it's like 10 years ago, you can't do anything about it. It's just silly. But like, yeah, just go for it. And like, I'd rather, I'd rather have loads of embarrassing moments and loads of stuff that I wish I hadn't done and, than, than sat and lived the, the safe life and just, Kind of cruised on by and then let it go.
0: How do you balance all these commitments with such a demanding job? And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell the listeners this. Now I remember probably about a year ago when I was struggling with balancing everything. I was in the middle of my student paramedic degree and I had all these other commitments. And I messaged you and I said, "How do you balance everything?" And you said, "It's not about balance. You've got to see things like an investment." So where you invest in, obviously, you take out from somewhere else. And then when the time comes, you have to invest and put back into that account. And I really like that analogy. And I take that into a lot of what I do now. Now, I'm just curious to you know, how do you find it when you've got all these these demanding responsibilities and you've got, you know, you're trying to please people and you you don't want to let people down? How do you find that work-life balance?
1: That analogy you've just spoken to there about the kind of bank account thing is um, from again Ben Cooper the <laughs> my great mentor and Yoda essentially but yeah he he kind of taught me that through telling his stories and in bits and pieces so I've definitely taken that on board. It's in, I don't think many people would say my life has balance I don't I'm not sure being balanced for me is a realistic goal I'm not sure it's necessarily something I think right today I need to have a balanced day I need to I need to sleep this much, and I'm going to work this much. I'm going to do this much. Um, I've got some stuff going to get done, and I will do something with myself. I'll go to the gym. I will go for a run. I will watch trash TV. I will <laughs> look at the latest medical kit that I can improvise or you know um, adapt for mountain rescue. I think if you have a few things in life that you are passionate about, and you really, really they really mean a lot to you and you really want to master them and you care passionately for those things, your life's not going to be balanced. And I think that's okay. If my life was measured by how good at watercolors I was and how much, and how good at ballet I was, I wouldn't be successful. And like, there's nobody going to invite me on their watercolor podcast. So it's about your metrics about what you're trying to achieve. Today I was late off work um, and I was aware I needed to come and do this with you. So, you know, but I needed to eat and I needed to do that and I needed to be there for my patients and I needed to do do the myriad of personal errands and bits and pieces I've got to run and I'm going off next week for a couple of weeks. So I've got a load of stuff I need to sort out for that and just the demands of life. So I think it's about taking a step back sometimes, zooming out. I think you can achieve a lot more than you think if you sit down and do some deep work for for an hour, 45 minutes, you could probably take quite off of your little to-do list. Um, But equally being all right with the fact that actually I can't do that right now and that's okay. And sometimes that balance isn't necessarily going to be positive in the work aspect, but it's going to be positive in the, I just need to chill out for 10 minutes and everybody can get lost for a week.
0: (laughs) How important is mental resilience to you and within your roles and how do you maintain this resilience or you know, how do you decompress after a difficult job?
1: Mental resilience is incredibly important. I think resilience is, is a, is a overused term at the minute, especially in, the, in my line, an our line of work at the minute. I think resilience is banded around that. Well, you must be resilient and that's part of your job. And it's kind of used as a bit of a, well, everybody feels rubbish, so you're supposed to feel that as well. So join the club, kind of thing, and get the t-shirt. And you must be resilient to that. I think being resilient is more about being being honest with yourself and being like, like today was rubbish, and being honest about your metrics about what you what you consider successful. Like, I think going into a specialist role for me, I do go and see more critically injured patients, more unwell people, and people who have a higher higher chance of having a negative outcome. Uh, and and ultimately having life-changing or or life-ending, you know, uh, incidences. And I've been been more involved with that. And everybody's involved with that to a certain extent, but I've definitely had more, I've been to more cardiac arrests uh, in the last six months than I have previously. So it's about being honest about your metric and actually, did we give that patient the best resuscitative effort we possibly could have? If we didn't, what could we do better next time in translating that? And being okay with you know some, mis- some mistakes happen let's recognize them at the, some of them at the time and deal with them being okay with that you know you need to speak to people and sometimes people aren't going to be receptive to you and you have to have a difficult conversation um i'm dealing with that later so yeah i think resilience is much more about metrics and how you view how you come away feeling from jobs and how su- how successful you feel that was or how positive you feel that was is not necessarily about the outcome. It's about performance or whatever. How do I decompress? How do I maintain mental resilience? Decompression for me is talking to people. Just it doesn't necessarily have to be about the jobs, or whatever. Just about whatever. What's going on with them? And I think a lot of a lot of clinicians and a lot of healthcare professionals find that people might minimise their kind of bad day because their bad day was you know a missed meeting or whatever. Whereas your bad day was, you know, death and destruction, but it's still it's it's all relevant. It's all uh, relative, and it it still equates to stuff. So I kind of I learned a good one, a good technique where go and talk to someone and say I've had a bad day. How was yours? Yeah, I've had a bad day as well. Okay, tell me about it and normalise that, and that's okay. And they don't need to know what the job was. Like just talk about how I'm feeling rather than what happened because it's about me, not that. So yeah. Talking to people, being more open, being honest with myself, and recognizing that I realize that I have to get it. I would like to get eight hours of sleep, go to the gym tomorrow, stretch, eat really well, get my five a day, all these things. But actually, that's not necessarily all achievable. And even if I get four a day, that's all right. And being accepting of that. And then just, uh, and again, the, just the basics done well, I think. Like, yeah, I'm tired. I've just finished the 12th. 13, 14 hour shift. Like I'm tired from that, but that's okay. I'm just going to finish having a great conversation with you and then I'm going to go and chill out. And that's, that's fine.
0: Jamie, you're very honest and open and you can across very humble. You're keen to help others and you demonstrate this real passion and love for what you do. You mentioned you've had some significant role models in your life and career. And these, these are the people that you look up to can i ask what traits and qualities specifically were in these people that that sort of really sort of that you valued and you look up to
1: thank you <laughs> that's very kind of you to say i really really like inspiring other people to do stuff i remember when i was like 20 i kind of wanted to start a bit of a be an adventurer and inspire other people through what i was going to do which i kind of i guess I've, I've still achieved i've i've kind of taken a different tack with it but yeah why do I think this is? I don't know. I It's just who I am, if I'm perfectly honest. I really like doing what I do and I'm passionate about what I do. And it's one of these th- things that I care deeply about, which is why I'll spend hours and hours writing policy and procedure for Mountain Rescue or whatever and not getting paid for it because that's not, it's not about money. And again, the biggest job satisfaction I have is someone else going off and achieving what they want to do because that's just, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's really, really cool. Who are my role models? I've got so many role models. And then again, I kind of cherry pick from a lot of people. I don't think there's anyone out there who's, who I'd hold up and go, this is the person who I want to emulate or I want to be like, I would say I've got some fantastic role models in my life, but I would cherry pick X from this person and Y from that person and Z from this person. And because I actually, that person as a whole They have flaws and actually I don't want to be like that bit of them. So it's more characteristics rather than people, I would say. But I do have a lot of amazing people around me um, and a lot of really awesome friends. I appreciate someone who's honest. um, They're not afraid to kind of speak up and say what they need to say, whether that is going to upset someone or not. I think being honest is really, really important about just how you're feeling, really, and what's going on. I think I admire... Courage to so someone who's not necessarily comfortable what they're doing. To have courage, by definition, you have to be scared and be out of your comfort zone. So courage is, is a symptom of of fear and of not being comfortable. And I admire attention to detail. I admire competence and I admire someone who's combined those things That in that they're not going to cut corners or they're not going to do things half-heartedly. And I think there's a good kind of it's probably a bit cliche, but how you do anything is how you do everything. It's not necessarily important for me to walk down the street wearing a a brand new Gucci suit or whatever, but it's important to me to turn up to work and make sure I've got what I need, you know, in my response bag and in my pockets and, you know, checking everything and things like that. Yeah, just willingness to be wrong, willingness to learn, being accepting of that, open-mindedness. Yeah, I think that the willingness to learn and willingness to, to to be open to ideas um makes you a more well rounded person. And again, the courage the courage to be wrong and, and change tack and things. And I think there's a you know it was an interesting kind of statistic or anecdote that I heard where if someone has had been in a disaster as a child and they they'd had to leave their childhood home, that was equivalent to like three years of higher education because of the experiences they had. And leaving your childhood home after disaster is a life-changing event. And it's the connotations of that are incredibly negative, but the impact of that on your life is kind of scientifically proven to be positive. Just going out there and and be willing to to get involved in life, I suppose.
0: So what's next for Jamie? What's the next challenge or any future aspirations?
1: Next challenge is getting up from my 6am alarm in the morning. It's always (laughs) a challenge and no matter how how fun the day is going to be, it's always a challenge. And then finish my shift tomorrow, head down to uh, Edinburgh to fly to Slovenia to direct the Alpine medicine course for WEM, for World Extreme Medicine, which is going to be a great week. We're looking forward to it. There's loads of new snow out there, which makes conditions really, really interesting. Then coming back, coming to the Mountain Rescue Winter Skills training weekend so coming up back up to the Cairngorms to do a little bit of climbing and training with the guys and girls there and then going back to Edinburgh to fly to Norway to actually have a holiday uh, ice climbing with my mates so that'll be really good and I've, I've really deliberately tried not to look at any guidebooks or maps or anything so when I get out there I can just we're going to a new area so I can really just kind of enjoy the experience when I'm there rather than be like oh we must go here or I must climb this or whatever and really push myself I can just chill out and enjoy where I'm being my future aspirations I'm about to change jobs again very shortly so my kind of aspirations at the minute are very focused on getting through that training and performing on that training and and doing and learning as much as I can to try and become that kind of sponge again and soak up all the information and and stuff that I can and um, excel at that I suppose like everybody wants to be good at what they do. So that's my next, my, my next big, big challenge. Yeah.
0: Okay. So Jamie, we're going to start with a few quick fire questions. This is the first time we've done this on Cast, and unfortunately you are our first victim. So if you're happy, we're going to start. Okay. So best moment in your career so far.
1: God, what a question. Can I come back to that one? That's a mad question.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can go back to it. Okay. If you could change one thing about your job, what would it be?
1: I would change how paramedics are s- seen and the public are educated about what we do. I think that could be better. And I would change the demand. So no one would be ill, we wouldn't have anything to do, and it'd be great, and everyone would be low.
0: Are you happy? Yes. Are you content?
1: No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Do you have regrets? Yes. If you could go back to one job or patient, what would it be?
1: Oh my God. I've been to so many jobs and patients where just talking to them for you could just the one of the biggest privileges we get as paramedics and we get as clinicians and and healthcare professionals, whatever walk of life that is, is that you get a, a window into someone's life. And that window is open and they are inviting you into that to their life and you you're absolutely privileged to be to be witness to some amazing moments, some heartbreaking moments all sorts of things. <laughs> to, to to boil that down to one patient, I think would be I think would be a crime. I don't think I could boil it down. There's far too many people who I've met once and had a conversation with or, or whatever, or just said something that um have um, left an impression on me. So
0: what's your biggest weakness?
1: I can't say, like, job interview and like, I'm too good at stuff. Um, (laughs) My (laughs) weakness is not accepting help from other people.
0: What's your greatest strength? Uh,
1: Resilience. No, (laughs) my greatest strength is my ability to get knocked down, cry about it, have a bad time, and get back up and try again.
0: Describe yourself in one word.
1: Uh, The first word that came into my head Was buffoon, to be honest Uh, So I'm going to go with that
0: (laughs) Okay, this is the last question Where are you going?
1: Literally, uh, very shortly I'll be going to my bed Mentally, to Slovenia on Saturday Spiritually, I'm not sure But hopefully the right way
0: Jamie, it's been a pleasure to have you on Paramedicast and we wish you all the best for your future adventures. I hope you find what you're searching for and I'm really glad to hear that you're having a holiday. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs)